please open with me to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, it should be a hardback black one somewhere around you. Please feel free to use that one. If you don't have a Bible that you can understand, please feel free to take that one as our gift to you. Uh, if you're using that one, we're going to start on page 1. That's the number 1, not the actual first page. So Genesis 1, we will begin in verse 26. Have you ever heard the saying, perhaps you've said it, Christianity is not merely a religion, but a relationship. I say merely because I couldn't bring myself to say Christianity is not a religion, because it is. The Bible says it is. It talks about good and pure, undefiled religion in the book of James. So there is good religion, and Christianity is meant to be that. Uh, but people say Christianity is not a religion, or not merely a religion, but it's a relationship. Okay, what kind of relationship? People will often say it's a personal relationship with Christ. Okay, what do you mean by that? Let's define that, let's work through that. The Bible agrees that true Christianity is indeed a relationship, but it's a certain type of of relationship. It is what is known as a covenantal relationship. People are in covenant with God. And as we will see as we work through this series, all people are in covenant with God in one way or another. They may not recognize it. They may be breaking it, but they're in covenant regardless. All people are in some sort of relationship with God, They may not be faithful to that relationship rightly or faithful to that covenant rightly, but they are indeed in a covenant relationship with God. And so we want to see what does it look like to be in a right covenant relationship with God. And in order to do that, we have to go back to the beginning. So in the time of the Reformation, there was a saying that said, go back to the sources. Let's go back to the sources and see what's right. Let's go back to the scriptures. Let's go back to the early church fathers. Let's go back to the original writings and see what's right instead of just taking people's word for it around us. Well, we really have to do the same thing if we're going to get Christianity right. We have to go back to the beginning. We have to go back to the font, to the original source, to Genesis. Because I would argue if we don't get the garden right, we don't get Christianity right. So, Lord willing, we're going to get the garden right today. And that's going to start us on a journey through the rest of the Bible to look at it rightly, to see how we might be in right relationship with God and what that demands of us. So with that in mind, we're going to start by looking at Genesis 1. And so I'm just going to read verses 26 through 31 to get us started. And then we'll kind of jump around through the first three chapters. So if you would, look along with me, starting in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient, life-giving word of our God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, 
Would you help us to see the truth of your word? God, would you help us to see the story of Adam and Eve rightly? The history of Adam and Eve, the true history of creation and what that means for us. And God, just as we just read that there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. God, we pray that you would push back the evening of darkness in our lives and in this world. And dawn on us with a new day, with the glory of Christ. So that we might live for him this year, this day, this week, this month, and every day. For his glory, for the good of your people, and for the life of the world. So God, would you do great things today? Open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts. God, may we lay aside any preconceived notions. And may we be open to being corrected by your texts, your word, your power, your grace, your spirit. So God, do what only you can do and transform us, we pray, for the glory of Christ and in whose name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're jumping into a new series and we're starting at the very beginning. And what we see, this is following after God has already created everything else and he gets to the sixth day and he creates God or creates God creates man rather in his own image so he says starting in verse 26 let us make man in our image after our likeness now as Christians we know that our is talking about the the triune God right God the Father God the Son God the Holy Spirit we, we wouldn't be able to make sense of that just yet by just reading this text in isolation. But of course, we're not reading it in isolation. We're reading it in light of all of Scripture. We're reading all of Scripture in light of the cross, in light of the gospel. And so this triune God, three persons, one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, makes man in his image after his likeness. And what does that mean? But the very basic level to be made in the image of God means to be made to image God. To show the world, to show others around you what he's like, his nature, his character. And so we have made in us uh, reflections and, and types and shadows and all these things tied to the nature and character of God. That we, we see things like anger and jealousy and, uh, and love and mercy and grace and all these things that are tied to the nature and character of God. We see those things in us because we're created in His image. But we're created in His image for a purpose, to image Him, to glorify Him. Right? The Westminster Catechism is going to say that we are created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And this is inherent into what it means to be created in the image of God. There's something of, of us being created for him, by him, to glorify him. That's, that's stamped on what it means to be a human. Or stamped into that, that aspect of what it means to be a human. So he says, he gives us these commands tied to what it be, means to be made in the image of God. He says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock... And over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he creates man and he gives this command to have dominion. Well, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that word dominion. But what ought to come to your mind is authority. This is kingly authority that he's speaking of. Adam is meant to be a, a steward or like an, an under shepherd, a, a, an under king. Um, if you've seen Lord of the Rings or if you've read it, you know, the steward of Gondor is not really the king. He's just kind of sitting in the throne. Uh, but there's a king that's meant to take that place. Well, God is the ultimate king. God has dominion. But he's created Adam and he's placed him in this position of authority to rule and to reign, to have dominion over the world around him, over the creatures around him. And he's to do this. In light of the nature and character of God. He's to do this in such a way that he displays to the world, this is what your God is like. This is what your true king is like. And so he's given a direct command here 
But there's more than just that command given. So he goes on, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we see this being created in the image of God is tied to both Adam and Eve, as we will see in chapter 2 as well. But male and female are created with dignity, with worth, with value, and the image of God meant to display what God is like in their own ways. Man to do it in one way, female to do it in another. But they're created in God's image for God's glory. Now, he kind of backtracks and explains what's going on to a greater degree, starting in verse 28. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. All right, so he's repeating what he just said, but now he's giving us context of what he said. So notice it starts off in verse 28, and God blessed them and then God commands them. This is how God operates throughout all of scripture. Sovereign grace initiates our right relationship with God. And then God commands us to do what he's called us to do, right? In order to do it rightly, it has to start from God's sovereignty, from a a position of blessing. Even in the garden, even before the fall, God starts that way. He blesses man and then commands him. For us, this works differently because we start with a sinful nature, which we'll get into in a bit. But... We, we, as we were just talking about in Sunday school, right, we cannot do good at all without God's sovereign grace, without being regenerated by the Spirit, being born again, given a new heart that beats for Christ, then enabling us to actually love Him, to trust Him, and then live for Him. God has to open our eyes, and, and we have to trust, we have to have faith and be united to God because of God's grace. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that faith never stays alone, right? It leads to obedience. It leads to a life that's lived for God's glory. We trust and obey, right? They're tied together. Faith always bears fruit in keeping with repentance where we seek to glorify God. Well, even in the garden, when repentance was not necessary, God blesses Adam and then calls him to obedience. He doesn't say, I will bless you if. No, he's says, you're blessed. Now walk out your blessing. Live in light of my grace. Live in light of my blessing. And that's the posture throughout Scripture. We do not seek to work to be good enough or to earn God's favor. We are given unmerited, ill-deserved favor. That's what grace is. And then by that grace, we are led to trust and obey. To live for God's glory. This pattern starts in the garden. God creates man in his image and God blesses them. And then God says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So, Adam and Eve are placed in God's creation and they are blessed and they are commanded to be fruitful and multiply. To take the blessing that God has given them and to bless the world around them. They've been blessed to be a blessing. We see that elsewhere as well too, don't we? You see it especially spelled out in the Abrahamic covenant as we'll get into in weeks to come. But that's the general idea. That's how God works with His people. He pours out mercy. He pours out grace. He pours out blessing. And He blesses you to be a blessing, to be fruitful, to multiply. And notice He says to fill the earth. Right? There in the garden, 
And as we'll see in Genesis 2, Adam has a specific charge to, to keep the garden. In, in Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord took man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And that idea of working, tending, tilling, doing all that's necessary to be fruitful, to multiply, and to keep it, that language of keeping it, it is tied directly to the language that the Levitical priests were called to, they were called to um, guard. So in, in Numbers 153, for instance, the Levites shall guard over the tabernacle. It's the same language. To guard is to keep it in Genesis 2.15. And, and Adam and Eve, especially Adam, they are called to, to work and to keep, to guard what is holy, what is good. What is glorious, and at this time, that's everything, but especially what God has given them in Eden, in the garden itself. Look, let me show you what I mean. Let's just keep walking through the text. Look in Genesis 2, verse 1. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Okay. Notice what he just said. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and then divided and became four rivers. So this tells you something if you know anything about landscape. And I don't, but I, I can read the Bible and read commentaries that tells me. If water's flowing out of it, it's going downhill. right? So Eden and specifically the garden, it, it's like a temple mountain. It's like a mountaintop. Right? We see these images throughout Scripture, whether it's Mount Sinai or Mount Zion. But God's holy place is like a mountain, a temple mount, and the waters are flowing out of it. And this is the same idea that, that is in the command from God to Adam, that he is to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. That is, what is in Eden is meant to flow out to the four corners of the earth. Like this one river that's watering the garden is divided and becomes four rivers out to the ends of the earth. And it's the same idea with Adam and Eve. It's not just the waters that are meant to flow out from Eden, but Adam and Eve and the blessings they receive that are meant to be fruitful and multiply and lead to greater blessings are meant to flow out to the ends of the earth. He's not uh, dominating over. He's having dominion. He, he's meant to steward well as God's under king, as God's under shepherd, these blessings and then take these blessings out into the world to the ends of the earth. To be fruitful and multiply, to take what he's been given, the holy and the good, the glorious, the what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, to take that and to fill the earth with it, to let it subdue the whole earth, to let the blessings of the garden overtake the whole world. So you've got paradise in the garden. And we often talk about, as we'll get to in the fall, that paradise was a loss. But the paradise that was meant to be had not yet happened because paradise was meant to overtake the whole world. Just a beautiful state of glory on earth, heaven on earth. This is what's meant to happen. This is what Adam and Eve are meant to be fruitful and multiplied to do. Yes, they are meant to have children, but all the blessings they have are meant to multiply out to the ends of the earth. But there's some conditions for this to happen. They have to be obedient. He has to 
follow the command to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, so on and so forth. But there's more commands there as well. Even the command that we'll get to in just a second, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's not the only command given here. You've got the command to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion, to subdue the earth. You've got the command to work the garden and to keep it. You've got the command not to eat of this one specific tree. But there are inherent commands underneath those commands. And I would argue that it's God's moral law. God's law. Think about it. Here we see the Sabbath mentioned for the first time. He says, God finished the work he had done and rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. Does God sleep? No. Does God really need to rest? No. But this is meant to be the Sabbath day, right? God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all its work that he had done in creation. Jesus is going to tell us later in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now what's interesting is the Greek word for man is the Greek word for Adam, anthropos. So if you're looking at your Greek Old Testament, if you're looking at the Septuagint, you're going to see the Sabbath, uh, or the Adam here is, is translated man, the same way in Mark 2, 27, Jesus says it's the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath is a good rule, a good law for Adam and all of his descendants. A day of rest is a good thing. A day of resting in God's grace and worshiping rightly is a good thing. And this is tied to God's moral law. Because if you remember right, this is part of the Ten Commandments. So we read earlier from Romans chapter 5 that Adam's sins and death comes because of sin, but the law has not yet been delivered. Well, what he means is on tablets of stone, it's not yet come. But the law is here in a sense because Adam is created in the image of God. If you read Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, basically one chapter talks about all people everywhere, Gentiles, being guilty before God, even if they know nothing of God, because there's enough proof in creation that there's a God who created us that we owe allegiance, right? We should be worshiping him, but instead we worship and serve the creation instead of the creator, right? Therefore, we are all without excuse. And then he goes on and says, but not only are Gentiles guilty, but Jews are guilty and Gentiles not having the law can sometimes get things right because he says in Genesis 2.15, I mean Romans 2.15 rather, excuse me, that essentially even the Gentiles have the works of the law written on their heart. Right? What does he mean? He means all human beings have a general knowledge of right and wrong. And right and wrong is rooted in God's moral law. And God's moral law is rooted in God's nature and character. And what it means to be created in the image of God is to have God's nature and character stamped on who you are as a human being. So if in Romans 2.15, if heathen Gentiles have enough knowledge to know right and wrong because they have the works of the law written on their heart, even though their losses all get out, how much more so do Adam and Eve have the law of God written on their heart as they are created in the image of God before the fall of man? They know what they are to do. They are to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they are to love their neighbor as themselves. And so Adam especially is meant to love the Lord his God by responding to the blessings of God with faith and faith leading to obedience, to trust and to obey, to walk this out, which is going to look like loving God. Jesus says later, 
you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's what Adam's called to do. To love God and to love his closest neighbor, especially Eve. And here we're even given a glimpse that God, God tells them some of the law that's going to be on tablets of stone later. We see that through the glimpse of the Sabbath. So this is telling us the moral law is present. God's Ten Commandments are present. Now, understand the Ten Commandments that are written on tablets of stone later. You have four written on one tablet. And those deal with how to love your God, how to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you have six tablet, or six commandments written on the second tablet, rather. And those deal with how to love your neighbor as yourself. And they're all rooted in the nature and character of God, which tells us that those Ten Commandments are only a summary of God's moral law. How good is God? Infinitely good. Infinitely perfect. And if the law is a reflection or a, 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 a summary or coming from a, uh, the nature and character of God, it can only be a summary of that because God's goodness cannot be exhausted. And so there are more laws that come later with the Mosaic Covenant and others, even in the New Covenant as well, but they're all still rooted in the nature and character of God. So all the law is connected to the moral law in some way or another. And so even these commands that Adam is given, they are tied directly to God's moral law, which is summarized by Jesus. We love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. But he's given specific commands on how to do this. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion. Then chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And to keep it, to guard what is good and holy, to tend it, to keep it, and to spread it out, to take over, to fill the earth with it. Right? Just as the waters flow from Eden, all that goodness, all that holiness, all that glory should flow out from Adam and Eve to the ends of the earth. Chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat. Of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, what does he mean? Things just got weightier, right? We were operating in light of blessings. God bless Adam. Do this, do this, do this. Now we're given curses. The curse of the law, right? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Galatians 3.15. What does he mean by being hung on a tree? Well, of course, we know for Christ, it meant being crucified on a rugged cross, which means dying. The idea is what we see in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And this is because in this relationship with God, you have blessings and you have curses. You have blessing leading to faith and obedience and ongoing blessing if faith and obedience is kept. But if unbelief and disobedience creep in, curses. Well, this is the language of covenant. Covenant, a covenant is a legal bond between two or more parties with specific terms and consequences. And the terms are usually blessings and curses, which is the consequences too. Right? Terms do this, don't do this, believe this, don't believe that. If you do, blessings. If you don't, curses. And this is what we see happening with Adam and Eve. And then he says in verse 18, the Lord God said it was not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what the world, what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Let me stop for a second and just point out this is in part what it means to have dominion. 
He's naming the world. He's bringing things into right order. So, yesterday, I was running around doing a number of things, putting finishing touches, finishing touches on my, my sermon. And my wife and my mother-in-law were cleaning. And we have three children and we have three dogs. And so even as you're cleaning, especially as you're cleaning dog hair, it just keeps flying everywhere. But they just keep going and they're doing their best to bring order out of chaos, right? To, to have dominion over that house, to, to have dominion over all the living creatures that are in the house, from the children to the animals, everything. Uh, and, and that's the same general idea, right? To bring something into right order. And Adam's doing that here by, by naming things that have yet to be named. He gives names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up, uh, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what we see here is you've got Adam given all these covenant stipulations from God. But he's not to be alone in this. He needs a a helpmate, a helper suitable for him. Not just livestock and other creatures, but he needs woman. Another person created in the image of God, yet different, but with much the same call on her life, yet slightly different. She's a helper under him. There's a hierarchy here functioning. But together, they are meant to glorify God. They are meant to follow these commands that God has given them. To be in the image of God, to glorify God and to enjoy Him. To be fruitful and to multiply. Adam could not do that on his own. He needs woman. And woman comes and that's part of what they are meant to do, to to reproduce. You get that hinted at with the naked and unashamed part. But it's more than that. They are to do all things for the glory of God. And notice the language of a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The two become one. We talk about this as the covenant union of marriage. We have a wedding coming up in six days. We'll be talking about this that day as well. But the two become one. And there's male headship there. So... A man leaves his father and his mother and holds fast to his wife and they shall become one. And he's called to lead her, to love her, to provide for her, to protect her, to serve her for God's glory. And she is to help him in the endeavor to live for God's glory, to be fruitful, multiply, to subdue the earth, to have dominion, to do all God has called them to do, to take the blessings that they have been blessed with and spread it out to the ends of the earth. And there's an aspect of which every husband is the covenant head of his house and will answer for the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of his household. Now, Adam is going to have to do that for his household, as we will see. But being the first man, he is the federal head, the covenant head of all of mankind. He's our representative as a whole. That's why the Bible talks about us either being in Adam or in Christ. And the reason is, is because Adam is in covenant with God, not just having to do with his marriage, but having to do with the whole of creation. And he is meant to be God's under shepherd, his steward, his under king, as it were. And he's not just king, but as we see in Genesis 2.15... He is to work and to keep this this garden temple, meaning to guard what is holy, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, and to spread it out to the world the same way the Levitical priests were called to do with the tabernacle, 
So we see that Adam is not only a king, but he's also a priest. But he's not only a king and a priest, but God gives him direct command saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God has given him direct commands. And, and I mean, we've seen many be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Keep the Sabbath day holy is tied here, which implies the rest of the law is tied as well. And then don't eat of this particular tree. God has given him a word. He's given him his word, his prophetic word, right? He tells him, if you do this, you will die. If you do these other things, you'll be fruitful, you'll multiply. The blessings will go on. Greater blessing will come. So Adam has a responsibility to heed that word and to preach that word. His wife and any future descendants need to know what God has said and live in light of what God has said. That's what a prophet does. A prophet delivers the word of God. So what we see here is Adam is a king, he's a priest, and he's a prophet. That's what he's called to be. The prophet, priest, and king of God. To steward God's world well. And to live for God's glory. And if he doesn't, he will die. If he doesn't lead his household right, his household will fall into sin and condemnation. But Adam is in charge of more than just his household. He's in charge of the whole world. And if he doesn't lead the world right, it will enter into sin and condemnation and death. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Covenant blessings, be fruitful, multiply, greater blessings come. Covenant curses, disobey me and die. Well, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see, Satan doesn't have any new tricks. Now this is Satan. It's a, no doubt it's, it's a serpent. I'm sure there's some sort of snake creature thing here as well. But this is Satan behind what's going on. Revelation 20 verse 2 tells us the dragon, the ancient serpent, is the devil, is Satan. Right? This, is, this is who we're dealing with here. Satan has using this animal or disguising himself as an animal or whatever it were to tempt man. But notice how he tempts. Did God actually say? This is what he does to Jesus in the wilderness as well in Matthew 4. He twists God's word. And tries to create doubt in God's word. He's seeking to sow unbelief. To steal, kill, and destroy. Right? What we have, what we've been blessed with by God. He's seeking to steal it. Or to kill it. Or to destroy it. To destroy us. So he starts sowing this doubt by saying, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Hmm. Is she adding to God's word there? I, I don't remember God saying it just like that. Maybe that's an implication. Maybe not. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Now, we should ask ourselves a question here. If Adam is called to work the garden and to keep it, and keeping it means guarding what is good and holy, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, where is he? Now, no doubt, he's there, just kind of watching, right? Because notice, it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now, it doesn't say they're naked in different places. It implies that they're there together. Now, I understand Genesis 3 is the start of a new chapter. But did you know that those chapters were put there by man? Right? So, 
the first one of Genesis 3 is directly following Genesis 2.25. We don't know that there's any time gap there, right? Adam and Eve are together. I'm assuming. I mean, maybe they're standing naked in different corners of the, uh, the garden, but I don't think so. This is honeymoon. Y'all got that. <laughs> Just make sure everybody's awake. So, God, Adam and Eve are together in some way or another. And the serpent comes in and starts saying all this. And Adam is called to guard, to keep. Adam should be protecting his wife in the garden. Like, it's hard. Like, my wife is, she, she's becoming kind of a weird snake lady. She likes to look at, the, you are, she likes to look at these groups that identify snakes. And she prides herself on being able to look at a snake and tell what kind of snake it is. When I see a snake, I see a dead snake. It's time to go. And she's like, oh, no, that's a good one. Don't kill it. <laughs> uh-uh. I'm not. Your man listened to his wife before. It didn't go well. <laughs> so if I'm Adam, I'm like a snake. And it's talking. Kill it. Like that's, that's what you're called to do. Protect your wife. So you see a snake crush its head, especially if it's talking. That's weird. I'm just saying. <laughs> Adam, Adam should have stepped up. He's called to keep, to work, to protect his wife, to protect what God has created, to protect what is holy. And he's failing. He's utterly failing here by just sitting back and letting this conversation happen. He should have stepped in and said, if you can talk to somebody, talk to me. Don't talk to my wife. Talk to me. But he doesn't. So goes on. Satan says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw, verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Her husband was with her. Ah, reinforced, right? Adam's there with her and he ate. She led Adam when Adam should have been leading her. He failed. He is the covenant head of his household and he failed. And not only that, he's the covenant head of the world and he failed. He follows instead of leads and he sins instead of obeying. And look, look at what Satan did. Look, look at this. Don't listen to God. He's just, he's just telling you things that. To, to lead you astray. No, he didn't want you to be like him where you'll know good and evil. And so Eve sees that the tree is good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired. Beloved, do not trust the desires of your flesh. Right? This is even before they've actually totally bit, before they've taken of the fruit. Now, the lust is there, it's coming. But think about that. Even in paradise, what we see here is trust God's word, not the desires of your flesh. Right? The world says if it feels good, do it. If you have a desire, it must be okay. You must have been born that way. Therefore, just go. Go with whatever you feel. And God's word says, listen to God and his law. Do not trust yourself. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Do not follow your heart. Follow God. Where does following our heart lead? Death. There is a way that seems right to man and its end is death. And this is what happens. Eve eats. Adam follows his wife. And he eats. And in verse 7, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So notice what they do they fall into sin, and instead of running to God, they run away from him. They, they 
seek to sow fig leaves together. They're, they fall into shame because of their sin. And then instead of going to God and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner, they seek self-righteousness. They try to solve a problem only God can solve by doing it themselves. I don't need to run to God. I can run from God instead of to God and I'll figure it out on my own. But that's, that's never going to work. It's just going to make things worse. You can't run from God. Which is what we see, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? By the way, God already knows where he's at. This is a reckoning for Adam. And Adam knows as much, which is why he answers. Verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? By the way, God knows that as well. He already knows that's happened. Right? This is a call to repentance. Have you done what I commanded you not to do? Giving him opportunity to confess, to repent. But look at what Adam does. The man says, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, if Adam would have responded rightly... He would have said, I have failed to lead my wife, to love my wife, to protect my wife, to lead your creation, to protect your creation. Let the punishment fall on me. Is this not what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has done? God loved us and gave himself for us in his own son, Jesus Christ. Right? That's the call of the husband now. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Christ being the new, true, better Adam who gives himself for his bride. That's what Adam should have done. He should have said, the woman you gave me, it's her fault. No, he should have said, it's my fault, God. I let her be led astray. I let the serpent creep into your good garden when I should have crushed his head. But he doesn't own his sin. He doesn't truly confess and repent the way that God's giving him opportunity to do. He fails again. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's true enough, but you're the problem, Adam. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. That is true. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent. Because you have done this. Notice he doesn't say, hey, serpent, what were you thinking? (laughs) The Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Notice God responds to what's going on with a curse, which is what happens in covenants. You have covenant curses. And covenant blessings. Now, a lot of people will say there's no covenant here because the word covenant is not used. But we read earlier from Hosea chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, that Adam was indeed in covenant with God, but he failed to keep it because of his faithlessness. He did not have faith. He did not trust and obey rightly. He did not take God at his word, and therefore he disobeyed God, and then curses came. Because Adam was indeed in covenant with God. Which is why, as we read earlier from Romans 6, or Romans 5 rather, we see that we're, we're dead in Adam because he's our covenant representative, but made alive in Christ because he's our new covenant representative. But I'm, I, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Just want you to see that this is the covenant, right? Blessings and curses are happening. So he curses The serpent says, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So did he have legs before? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Did he have some other way of getting around? It appears so, and then now he's on his belly. And in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, if I'm Adam and Eve right now, my ears have perked up. What's this? We're not going to die right now? 
Like you're talking about us even living and reproducing offspring, being fruitful, multiply. What a gracious God. They should have been wiped out. But God has grace upon them. But the grace is much greater than simply letting them live. Look at what he says. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. Now, perhaps this is why I don't like snakes. Right? There's enmity between humanity and snakes. But this is pointing to something so much bigger. Right? In between, enmity between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. But hang on now. If we're in Adam, we're condemned. We are born into sin. We follow in his steps. This is what scripture teaches us. In Adam all die. In Christ all are made alive. We are born with a sinful nature. Born depraved. Born dead in our trespasses and sins. But Ephesians 2 tells us, not only are we dead in our trespasses and sins, but we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind under the prince of the power of the air. Jesus says in John 8, 44, even as he's talking to Jewish men, even leaders of the Jews, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And the idea is that even from Eve, you have offspring of Satan and offspring of Christ, of grace, true children of Abraham. Right? You can be a child of Abraham according to the flesh, And still be of your father, the devil, because you don't have faith in Christ. But here we're seeing that there will be offspring from Adam and Eve who have faith. But there will also be offspring who are of the devil. And you see this in the very next chapter. In Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Abel, he offers a sacrifice rightly. And let me just point out. Sacrifice happens right after this and happens again in in Genesis 4. Now showing us that that's what's required to be in right relationship with God. But Cain is warned by God. Don't do this. Sin is creeping. Its desire is to have you. It's knocking at your door. Don't do this. But he does it. He kills his brother. Showing that he is of the evil one. 1 John 3.12 says we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Cain was a descendant of Satan. An offspring of Satan. Abel was not. How can this be? How can anybody be an offspring of Christ in Genesis? After all Adam has done is lead us into death and decay and brought a curse upon the world. Well, the promise of the gospel is in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, offspring of Satan, offspring of Christ, children of God. He shall bruise your head. The word for bruise is the same word for crush. He will crush your head and you will strike And bruise his heel. You will crush his heel. Now, Christ appears to be crushed at the cross. But he defeats death through death. He tramples over death through death. And he crushes the head of the serpent. He crushes the head of Satan through the cross. After living the life that we have failed to live, living the life that Adam failed to live, totally upholding God's law, totally loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving his neighbor as himself. He does everything that Adam failed to do, and he pays the penalty for Adam's failure and ours. And we see this alluded to in what goes on. He says, And to Adam, he said, verse 17, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed. Is the ground, again, covenant language. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Now, now we are going to die physically. 
The man called his wife, wife's name Eve because she was a mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Covenantal sacrifice is happening here. God sacrifices the first animals and covers Adam and Eve, covers their sin. Not that that sacrifice actually covers sin. Hebrews is going to tell us the sacrifice of lambs and bulls and goats doesn't actually pay for sin at all. But it points forward to the perfect sacrifice in Christ. And so through that sacrament... Through that sacrifice, the grace of Christ is delivered just as through Genesis 3.15, the gospel is delivered. This is what theologians call the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. And it happens because God has a covenant, what's known as a covenant of works with Adam. Where he's saying, look, if you respond to my blessing in faith and you obey my law, more blessings will come. Greater life will come. If you disobey me, death will come. And death comes. They disobey. Now they don't die that instant, but they do die. They came from the dust, and to dust they shall return. But Adam picks up on something. That the offspring of woman is going to trample over the offspring of Satan... And so he calls Eve the mother of all living. And he doesn't mean mere physical life, but true, genuine life. The life that Jesus talked about in John 17, 3, when he says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the Father and the Son whom you sent. Eve is now the mother of all living because Her offspring are tied to this covenant of grace that God has now created. The covenant of works that God first brings Adam into, or a covenant of creation, or a covenant of life, whatever you want to call it, gives way to the covenant of grace. God allowed all of this to happen for His own glory, to magnify the glory of His Son, who would show Himself to be the new, true, better Adam. To be everything we need. To be the skull crusher of the serpent. To be the one who would trample over Satan. And usher us into the fulfillment of all true blessings that God meant to bring upon the world. Through Eden going out to the four corners of the earth. So this promise is here. And instead of bringing death upon them immediately, God has grace upon them. Even sacrificing for them and covering them in their sin so that they could be under his grace. Now he says in verse 22, the Lord God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, God is not worried that Adam and Eve can figure out a way to live forever Without him knowing. No. They are no longer in the relationship they once had. And they do not have the right to enjoy that the way they once did. Now, blood sacrifice is required for them to be in any kind of right relationship with God. Under the first covenant, there's only condemnation. But then now this new covenant, this covenant of grace that's being established ultimately in Christ... And the promise of Christ here, rooted in God's plan of redemption before the foundation of the world, it comes through sacrifice. And the ultimate sacrifice being the sacrifice of Christ, the cross. So I said in the beginning, Christianity is indeed a relationship. But it's a covenantal relationship. You are either in Adam or in Christ. If you're in Adam, you're still in covenant with God, but you're under a failed covenant, bringing only condemnation, bringing death, bringing hell. But in Christ, you are under a covenant of grace, 
bringing true, genuine life, eternal life, bringing blessings because of Jesus' work on your behalf, because of His sacrifice on your behalf, because of His resurrection on your behalf. You are united to Him by faith, and then all of His blessings come to you. Even the blessings of trampling over the evil one. Paul says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Because you are so united to Jesus, you are now the body of Christ. And the promises that are tied to Christ are now tied to you. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1, 20. And so now you are brought into grace and able to live the life God has called you to live. And so at the heart of understanding the Bible... And at the heart of living in right relationship with God is understanding that right relationship means covenant faithfulness. If you simply act like there is no God or seek to work your way to heaven, you are showing yourself to be in Adam, in a broken covenant that only leads to death and condemnation. But if you trust in God's promises by faith, If you look to Christ, you are showing yourself to be in the covenant of grace. And that same pattern that we see in creation is still there. God's blessing by sovereign grace, ill-deserved favor comes first. But though we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that faith does not stay alone. That faith calls us to live for God's glory. Indeed, that's the point of the grace. To get us back to what we were meant to be. So that we could indeed glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So that we could actually be in the image of God. And be fruitful and multiply and have dominion and subdue the earth. And to keep and to guard and to bless the world because of the blessing that we have received. We don't work To get it, we work from it. But as we work, God continues to bless our obedience. Because He's a gracious and good God. But you must walk out faithfulness to the covenant. Now the standard of faithfulness has not changed. God's moral law is rooted in God's nature and character. And God does not change. Therefore, right is right all the time. Whether you're an Adam... Or whether you're in Christ. Which is why it is good and right for us to hold the world to the same standard of morality that Christians are to live to. Because right is right no matter what. And they all owe God allegiance. Everybody does. Again, there's enough proof in creation to see that there is a creator whom we are to worship and to serve. But we fail to do it and we worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. But we have no excuse. And on top of what the creation says to us, because we are created in the image of God, we have enough proof in our hearts. We have the work of the law written on our hearts to tell us that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But we can only do it rightly In Christ. Now praise God. When unbelievers follow God's law. That's good for humanity. I am very thankful that people don't murder. Simply because they don't want to go to jail. Or to receive the death penalty. Now that's that's not glorifying God in the right way. Under the covenant of grace. But it's still a good thing. Praise God for it. So the law is the law. The standard is the standard no matter what. But for us. If we will look to God rightly, we must look through Christ and his covenant of grace. We must look through the promises given throughout scripture that start right here in the beginning. Why did God allow the fall? Why did he allow sin to enter into the world? For his glory is the only answer we're truly given. And his glory magnified in the person and work of his son. But what we see here is that the person and work of his son is our only hope. So, yes, Christianity is a relationship, but it's a covenant relationship with standards, with specific terms and consequences. We are called to trust and obey. 
We are called to follow in the footsteps of Christ, who was everything Adam failed to be. Which means we are called to work and to keep what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. To uphold covenant faithfulness by God's grace. But then to seek to export it out to the ends of the earth. To fill the earth and subdue it. We are to seek to bring every area of life into joyful submission to the Lordship of Christ. Whether you're a farmer or an engineer or a contractor, a mother, a teacher, whatever you do in every area of life, you are to bring it into covenant faithfulness. To bring order out of chaos. To bring everything in the right submission to the Lordship of Christ. Which means under this covenant of grace for the glory of Christ. We are to walk out this cultural mandate that Adam and Eve were given. But in light of the covenant of grace. In our flesh, we're just under the covenant of works. With no hope. Leading, going straight towards death and condemnation. But in Christ, we have everything. In Christ, we have grace. We have God's faithfulness. We have glory. We have eternal life. We have joy. So what we're called to do is to live out this covenant relationship and seek to spread it throughout all the earth until all the creatures of our God and King Worship Him rightly. May we not settle for making up some sort of relationship idea with Jesus that is not biblical. God does not live by our terms. We are to live by His. So may we live that way and seek to spread that to the ends of the earth.